This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Glenknapp Castle, A Scottish Intrigue. And the author is Tina Rosenberg. And Tina joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Tina. Oh, good morning, Steve. It's wonderful to be here. Well, good to have you with us, and congratulations on publishing this mystery, a mystery that includes murder, a curling caper, a ghost story, corruption. On top of all that, Glenknapp Castle is an enthralling tale set against the stunning backdrop of Scotland's craggy southwestern coast. It's really a real place, Glenknapp Castle, isn't it? It is, and I think that's what makes um, has made the writing of this so wonderful and enjoyable. My husband and I went on a driving trip to Scotland in May of 2004 and stayed at Glenapp Castle Hotel, which um, a young couple renovated in 1994, and it is truly one of the most beautiful places on earth. It's just breathtaking. And I had never dreamed, honestly, Steve, that I would ever write fiction, but I knew right then that that's where my story would take place. And we stayed an extra three nights, and by the time I got back to the States, I had, an, in my head anyway, an outline. And the owners of Glenapp Castle, Faye and Graham Cowan, um, have just been incredibly helpful in um, giving me tons of information and history, and allowing me to interview staff and have pretty much free reign of um, their property when I went for a month to do research and for our daughter, Brooke, to take photographs for the illustrations that she did. It's, it's been just wonderful. And you also got to interview Hammy McMillan, is that it? A five-time it European is. It is. world curling well, and world it, curling champion to help you with the plot. Oh, honestly, when you go to Glenapp Castle, there are curling stones everywhere, which sort of piqued my interest. And of course, as you, this castle, Steve, sits um, right on the ocean, on the Irish Sea, and out there is Elsa Craig, which is this monstrous 1,200-foot sea mountain, actually where all the world's curling stones are quarried. And so I just absolutely thought that there has to be a curling piece in this. And of course, I'd never curled in my life, but we actually ended up curling on one of our visits at Hammy McMillan's um, curling rink. And he actually is the brother of Faye Cowan, who owns Glenapp Castle. It's actually the McMillan family has a number of hotels in Scotland. And so when I went back for a month to do research, a year later, I was lucky enough to interview Hammy McMillan, and he is one of the nicest, most accessible um, gentlemen, and he is the five-time European and one-time world, world curling champion, and he spent four hours with me, and we plotted, and oh my gosh, we just had the best time, and it was a real honor to be with him, and he was one of the many fascinating people that I got to interview. Most of the action in Glenapp Castle takes place from about 1967 to 2006. Why that time period? Well, I did it originally around um, 1997 because that was the first year that curling was actually a medal sport in the Olympics. And I thought I, I really wanted to have the, um, the sense of place and the sense of history correct in this novel. So I took that um, date and sort of wove the story around that. Also, I used um, Faye and Graham Cowan, who, who own Glenapp Castle, I used them as main characters in the book. So it all just seemed to me that I wanted to write about the present. And, of course, I was started in 2004, so I was thinking it might be done by 2006, naively. Um, so although the story takes place in 2006 as present, um, there's lots of history in it. And so it goes way back because, indeed, the head gardener, Tom Hutchison, who was one of really the main protagonists in the book, is fifth generation. 
So he takes the reader way back to all lots and lots of history. And as you put it, it has the underpinning of the struggle between good and evil steeped in ancient fairy lore. Now, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> it's a great question. There is a true fairy legend that one should never build a house on the path of the fairy procession. And I love Celtic history and fairy lore. And so I already actually had fairies in this story. And as I began to do more research, I thought this was a perfect, perfect legend to incorporate into my book. And indeed, the, the real heinous character in this book, Sir John McPhee, builds the North Turret Wing right on the fairy processional path. And so the locals all know that that forebodes terrible, terrible luck. And so part of the story is around what actually happened because he did that, and who are believers and who are non-believers, and how that weaves into the choices that people make relative to what their beliefs are. Because there is a murder, and we won't give away how or who, but the five suspects involve just about everybody because they could all have a justifiable cause. Well, that's right. And the, the, what's interesting, I think, there, there are a couple of factors here that really influenced me. I don't know if you are familiar with Wilkie Collins' book, The Moonstone. It's um, an epistolary novel, really, but it's a mystery. And it was the first mystery ever actually printed in Britain. And I love that book. And it's actually told by different people in first-person narrative, and, and thus the mystery unwinds. And so I modeled the way Glenapp Castle was written after Wilkie Collins' The Moonstone. And so there are five suspects, and the book slowly introduces all of them, and they each tell their story of why, and the reader will feel, of course, that each and every one of them is justified in killing um, Sir John McPhee. And in the end, of course, he is murdered in a fire, and he's not the only one. But the, um, And as it ends up, um, the reader will be extremely surprised on how the mystery is solved. And we also have a very sad devastating experience for a young character at six years old she gets hit by sir john yes and and as the story unravels you know they're just um this is actually william's story and william is is an assistant gardener and his he's off for the day on his day off and his little much beloved daughter lucy is riding her bike on the glenapp castle driveway and sir john mcphee comes barreling home drunk one night having had a, a horrible affair, um, and hits her. And she is um, in a vegetative state of coma for 10 years. And this is actually interesting, Steve, because, you know, writers really draw from real life, I think, to, make, to write good novels. And we have a very good friend whose son had a similar accident, um, although he was driving and is still in a vegetative state of a coma. So I used our friend's son's story here um, and, and used it in the story, of course, with their permission. And sadly, their son, their son is still um, has not woken up. Um, but in the story, Lucy does. But again, interviewing um, the parents of this friend uh, had an enormous impact on how I wrote this segment of the story. And of course, in the story, Lucy Hobbs does wake up, and that's, and that's one of the the happy pieces. And you could even say, as she regains consciousness, you just really get caught up in those kinds of emotions. Well, I, I think it is a tearjerker, but I think that there's something that the real underpinning of this novel is the fact that everything is connected. That everything that we say and that we think and that we do truly impacts our actions and the consequences of our actions. And what's happened is, is that because Sir John McPhee, as I mentioned before, totally disregarded fairy lore and built this north turret wing on the fairy processional path, everything starts to go awry. And then, of course, it, when his ghost is finally expelled, it lifts this dark cloud and really um, gives the fairies an opportunity to come back and then, of course, bestow their good fortune on everybody. 
And so it's a metaphor, really, for the choices that we make and what we believe in and the power of, um, of words and thoughts and our deeds over evil. So it's in a little bit of an untraditional sense, but um, that really is what this book is about, is that to, to love and to be loved is really um, the only thing that makes the world go around in a positive way. So, so there is a direct good and evil, but it's, uh, it's done in, a, in very subtle ways. And of course, that kind of message can change all our lives, but we have to embrace that kind of truth, and, and that's what you're trying to help us to see. Well, that, that's right. I, I've taken a story. I do believe that. I do believe we have choices and that our attitude and the, um, the voice that we decide um, to project into the world, it, literally with our thoughts and our words and our deeds, does have everything to do with the destiny that we manifest. And that's really what this novel is about. And it, it, it is a universal message and, and one that is central to absolutely everything in this novel. And, and actually, it's interesting, Steve, because at one point I... I had a quantum physics piece in it to sort of demonstrate that literally at the subatomic level we're connected. We know that now. We're all connected by vibration. And I decided it was a little bit pedantic and I took it out. But nonetheless, that really is what this book is about, is um, the choices that we make and how we perceive life and whether we decide to live in a positive or negative manner. Do you give us that kind of picture in our mind of Glen Knapp Castle? Because you talk about it being a 30-acre estate. It has to absolutely be just breathtaking. Oh, it's, it's truly one of the treasures of the world. And I'm, uh, you know, I've been around a bit. I just, we, we all, I mean, anyone who's seen it really just can't believe how beautiful it is. And I think that um, it's a lot more than just a castle. It, this 30-acre property um, it's actually part of a 13,000-acre estate, but, but the Glenapp Castle Hotel itself is now 30 acres. And it is rolling hills and beautiful, beautiful gardens. I mean, it, it's, um, there's a terraced garden with a beautiful Celtic statue of, of the mother goddess of fertility in the middle of it. And it's just uh, it, it looking, overlooking the sea and Elsa Craig. And there's a beautiful azalea pond, they call it, that's totally surrounded by azalea bushes of every color, as big as houses. I mean, really. And then there's this two-and-a-half-acre wall garden that really is central to my story. And you walk in there, and it's, um, it's hard to explain. It, it's a whole world unto itself with beautiful fruit orchards and herbal gardens and a stream running through it and three really amazingly beautiful um, glass conservatory. Um, oh, I mean, you know, I could go on and on with Celtic statues everywhere. It's really um, heaven on earth. But also the topography is such that you can walk forever, and behind it is this beautiful Garlison Glen, which just runs the full length of for miles and miles and miles with with a stream running right through that. It just goes on and on. It's yeah. It's quite a remarkably beautiful place and very inspirational. And a very charming village that's right there that creates this kind of atmosphere for your novel. Oh my gosh, yes. It's a village of Ballantrae has three hundred people still. It's just teeny and it's a seaside town. Um, to put this in perspective, this is in southern Ayrshire, so it's ninety miles southwest of Glasgow. And um, it really is um, a quintessential small sea village. So the ocean on one side, and then behind it are these rolling hills with sheep and cattle. And it's so picturesque and so pastoral that you, uh, you really feel like you're just on a different planet. It's wonderful. I would encourage readers who like um, multi-genre novels, to read this because I think I learned so much in the writing of it and all the research that I did that I hope that readers will have the same experience. The comments that I get back are that they love that aspect, which I think is ironic because it's exactly that aspect, the fact that it's sort of cross-genre, they call it, that I had trouble getting published in New York. That Traditionally, um, the publishing world is, of course, profit-driven, as it should be, and they like books to be right in a genre, right in a pocket. So 
to be able to put it in a shelf that's romance or crime suspense or sci-fi or whatever, and which I think is perfectly understandable. But this book offers um, a lot of those all wrapped up into one. And I think the fact that it's illustrated is quite unique. It's extraordinary for, for an adult novel, and the illustrations are just beautiful. So it's a different experience, my, my book, Glenapp Castle. And I, I welcome readers to um, make comment. My website is tinarosenberg.net, and um, I, I love sharing this with the public. It's, it's been a fantastic experience, and when I have an opportunity to talk with um, friends and readers at book signings, um, I, I really love their comments. And you, I'm growing as a writer. This is my first novel. My second one is uh, right in the genre pocket. It's historical fiction. It's a World War I love story. Um, but the, the adventure of writing Glenapp Castle is something that I hope will continue, and I welcome comments. And, of course, we can order Glenapp Castle from iUniverse, and I'm sure all online retailers as well. Oh, absolutely. You can order it through Amazon.com, through Barnes & Noble, again, through iUniverse, through my website, tinarosenberg.net. And I, um, my book, Glenapp Castle, A Scottish Intrigue, will be entered in the August uh, retailer's catalog. So hopefully it will be in bookstores and it will be an e-book. It should be an e-book for Kindle, Sony, and the Nook, Barnes & Noble's Nook, in two weeks. Well, thank you, Tina, for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you, Steve. It's been an absolute pleasure. I enjoyed speaking with you. That was Tina Rosenberg. She is the author of her book, Glenknapp Castle, A Scottish Intrigue. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio for the cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Traveler, and the author is Jenna Lindsay, and Jenna joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jenna. Hello, Steve. This is a science fiction thriller, and it's intense and action-packed. Uh, sometimes uh, it has some very intense, and even some people say even they could use the word horror, that it, you take us to the extreme of our emotions, and this is about a time traveler, and I, I just want to kind of set it up with a just a reading a little bit from the prologue. You write, the machine was ready. 
The traveler examined the final data again. After centuries of traveling from world to world, she felt afraid. After mediating political disputes, preserving treaties, and preventing wars, the traveler felt small, uncertain, and alone. Why? Yes, why did you? Why did you write this book in the way you did? What? What? What was the motivation? Two things were happening. One is um, I was noticing that uh, particular phrases were used cavalierly that people would say, "I'm sorry, but," and it seemed to me to discount the apology, and that the phrase "I love you" was frequently misused as well. "I love you, but." I love you, therefore, whatever I've done to hurt you is okay. And contemplating that, I was, uh, it was winter here in Calgary, and there was a street light uh, across from my study window where I was just sitting, mulling over, you know, various ideas, and uh, snow started to blow across the light, and I thought it looked really beautiful and magical. And uh, I, I thought, what, what is magical, what is so powerful about this phrase, I love you, and what is so magical about the snow? I, in my study, I had a photograph of a castle in winter, and I started to combine these different ideas and images, and I wanted to pursue them with magic, but also uh, with science fiction fantasy to blend those two genres as I was blending these ideas and images. So um, I thought, well, I want time travel, but I, I don't like too much technology, but I'm going to need a little bit of it. And I want something very magical like castles and, and blowing snow in, in a, the early light of evening to me, to me was visually really beautiful to look at. Uh, of course, I was inside my study where it was nice and warm. And that's how I started. I started right there. And at the end of chapter one, it actually, um, it says, I'm drunk, propped in the doorway across the street, saw a man and a woman talking beside a lamppost. He blinked, and they were gone. It began to snow. And that's the end of chapter one, and you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute. So in the prologue, we have the technology, but we have magic happening at the end of chapter one, part one. And then uh, from there, I take you through uh, a world of magic and castles and then I take you to another world where it's technology and um, then another world again where there's more magic and finally um, is she going to use this the time travel machine she's created or isn't she so I, I, I really enjoyed working with the, the blend of genres and and I I really enjoyed creating a mystery uh, it was very unexpected to me how how chilling it got, how scary. Um, definitely 180 degrees around from my from my first book, which was uh, so much of a more of an adventure. This this one is um, this one's intense, as you said. And it has a happy ending. It does have a happy ending. I I'm a stickler for happy endings. I I and at, I hope that. Um, the story is literally told in a flashback in the prologue. The traveler, Ginny, is looking at this time machine. Will she use it or not? It's a, it's a very, it's the most important decision she will ever make because if she has made any miscalculations, if anything goes wrong, that's, this is her one chance. And so she has to really be 100% certain. And she, that's why she's frightened. And she says, I looked out the window and he was there. And so the entire story is her remembering so if at any point in the story you start to get really anxious or scared or think, oh, oh, this is great, but it's, I can't sleep. I have to shut the book. I, I have to put it down. Oh, I can't put it down. I want to know what happens next. Um, you just have to say, oh, right, this is, she survived all this somehow. I have to find out how, see if I can figure out the puzzle for myself, solve the mystery. And um, then in the epilogue, well, she'll make her decision or not, and either way, there will be a happy ending. But you've got to buy the book. <laughs> so is Ginny in search of love? Ginny has love. She has real love. Um, she's explaining it to her friend. Um, 
at the near the start of the book in chapter one, real love, more than true and better than everlasting. Real love, incomprehensible, passionate, peaceful, and life-fulfilling. And she has that, and she loses it, and she struggles to regain it. She, she needs to regain her memory, which she loses for the first time she travels, and to understand why she's traveling, and how can she possibly return to the real love uh, that she that she had and that she's hanging on to, that that's her motivation as she travels to understand what's happening to her, why, and how to get back to the real love. And she travels alone. She does. She travels alone. She she meets, um, in part two, she meets a wonderful, wonderful uh, person named Susach who is uh, instrumental in helping her, befriends her, they become fast friends. And uh, I really, I really liked that. In part three, again, she she is befriended by an, an another uh, woman, uh, Brinadar, and the, the two of them have a few things in common. And together, they, um, you know, try to escape the really horrifying truth that's lurking in the shadows. In this book, there's a lot of description of light and shadows. I find shadows can be spooky, they can be dramatic, they can be beautiful. The change of light can alter how, whether you speak in a hushed whisper or um, whether you speak boldly and loudly. So I, I played around with that a little bit. Does Ginny have uh, an enemy that kind of pursues her or she's pursuing? I mean, there's always that forces of evil in, in, that have to be dealt with. Well, I don't believe that, and certainly there there are villainous people uh, in each each world she travels to, who um, believe that the, who don't believe that they're uh, villains at all, and like the person who says I'm sorry or who says I love you, and that's supposed to make everything okay. That person doesn't believe that they've done anything wrong. They don't believe that they're in any way a villain or harmful. And is she being pursued? No, she's she's being pulled. And um, you know, it, you have to read the book. I, I I've said that before. I'm sorry that I don't want to spoil it for you, especially for people who who like to solve it themselves, who don't cheat and skip ahead to the ending. Uh, <laughs> um, that it it gets really interesting and. Um, uh, I myself would be surprised sometimes I'd be writing and doing a revision and I'd say, oh, wow, that's really interesting. Who wrote this? Oh, right. I did. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like standing on the sidelines, right? And here you're yeah. in, right in the middle of the game, but you're on the sidelines at the same time. I think that's authors go through that often, especially with fiction and especially with thrillers i mean that that yeah. uh, because your uh, readers are going to go oh my goodness i didn't expect this yes that's i hope i hope that the that it's unexpected um that the the that it's compelling i really i want you to be scared and and have nightmares uh if you like to be scared um it's uh the focus of Ginny, is she's surrounded by a lot of chaos, and I want you to feel that chaos and trust in yourself and in Ginny uh, that you're going to survive it. And if you feel at some point, oh, no, this is too scary, just remember, she's already survived it. So just hang in there with her and try and figure out exactly what's happening. And that's when in part three it gets, that's where the horror is, where you go, oh, wow, oh, that's really, woo, that's scary. And... And then you, and then it keeps going from there. And you say, "Well, now what?" <clears throat> that was fun for me <laughs> as a writer. And uh, so far, people have been saying to me, "Wow, I really enjoy this." Well, you say that you found it difficult to write those mm -hmm. scenes of violence. Yes, I did. I always do. And the scenes where Ginny was experiencing the violence directly were really disturbing to me. I. I really found it difficult to write them, and I would 
write the scene, and then I would leave my study and just breathe deeply and uh, try and be very detached from it. And then I would go back in and read it over and say, okay, now, uh, to make it really well written, what do I need to pay attention to here and there? And then to make it flow and and be you know cohesive with the story um, and true to the character and the supporting characters. And there's a lot of supporting characters and a lot of um, subplots and uh, that to to write the scenes of violence, um, I I took a lot of breaks. <laughs> I took a lot of breaks. But when you're reading it them in context, it will. Hopefully, it's it's not like page after page after page of violence. I like to be succinct. It's there because it's necessary to the story only, and it's brief. It's to the point. It's in my my I hope well written and keeps you on the edge of your seat, and then you're out of it. You're clear of it, and you know why that happened, and you continue to read to find out more. Um, but they were hard to write. Because of, I, I, I don't like scary movies myself. <laughs> you don't like scary movies. You just like <laughs> to write them. You just Pardon? like to have other people experience the scary yeah, movies. Yeah. That, <laughs> or the scary book. It, and they're here, you read and skip the scary bits. <laughs> yeah. But you can't really skip very many of the scary bits in The Traveler because there's so many of them. They're, you know, it's, uh, it, mystery in and of itself is, is scary. You don't know what's going to happen next. What's going to happen next? This is intense. You, she cannot remember, she can't remember, and when she does remember, well, what is it she's remembering? And um, it's, it's very, um, uh, writing it, I'm very concentrated and deep within what the character is experiencing. Then when I revise it, I'm one step removed and a little bit further removed. But the first time someone reads The Traveler, I hope that they very get really compelled and involved and experience that. And just if it's disturbing and unsettling to them, I've done a good job. But also just remember that it's all told as she, re- she reflects back on how she got to the point in the prologue. We've got a so couple I'm, more minutes in, the, uh, in our talk here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Jenna, uh, one of the supporting characters in your book said the universe is a cruel place, but not maliciously so. So that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, We tend to think that when we're going, we as humans, as people, we think that when something is going terribly wrong and we can't see how we're ever going to survive it, uh, that it's on purpose that we're being punished or that we deserve it, or that there, or that there's no hope, and and it is tough out there, and it is scary. Whatever's happening to you, something terrible and extraordinary, like time travel and traveling through time and space, or something like um, that really frightens you. Maybe you have to get up and get up in front of a lot of people and give a public speech, and it's scary and awful, and you're thinking, oh, I can't possibly do this. Whatever the context. Um, it's not the universe is a cruel place, but not maliciously. It's it's not personal, and you know you will get through it. You will have your happy ending. You say that it's a story filled with mystery. It's chilling. It's about love, and the characters are strong, determined, and desperate. Yes. Traveling to five different worlds, and it's now. So all the above that combine into this thriller. Intense, action-packed science fiction. We congratulate you on your second book. Yes. And much different from your first one. Completely, and it's not a sequel. I've had a lot of requests for a sequel, and sorry, this isn't it. Well, how do we get your book, Jenna? You can uh, get it from iUniverse, iUniverse iUniverse.com, Amazon, and Barnes & Noble, and in Canada, Chapters, and indigo, you know, everywhere. <laughs> She's everywhere, everywhere, everywhere great books are sold. We can get your book just by telling them. Telling I them, want. That, you know, please order this for me, right. or you can go online yourself and order it direct from any of those sites or direct from iUniverse. If you want to get a free preview page, get a little more detail about what's in store for you, iUniverse has 
the big scoop and Amazon has, and Barnes and Noble, um, et cetera, they have a little bit, not as much as iUniverse, but they have some. Well, thank you, Jenna. Thank you for being on this edition of iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. That was Jenna Lindsay. She is the author of her book, The Traveler. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Pooling Blood, A Journey of Two Girls with Hemophilia and Their Parents' Struggle to Keep Them Alive. And the author is Cheryl Nenef D'Ambrosio. And Cheryl joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Cheryl. Good morning. Well, I'm going to read uh, something that you've written, introducing the book in a very short way. And then I'm going to read also what one of your readers said about the book, uh, just kind of to give everyone a general uh, view of this book. You say, when I first became involved with Tony, a widower, and his two young daughters, I soon found out we lived a life that was full of terrifying situations. I continued to try to find ways to make our lives more normal, but after 15 years, normal never happened. And this is what one reader said this book is a story of struggle for two girls suffering from a bleeding disorder. It's also a story of how to handle situations where life seems to be going to an end. It describes the struggle of parents to make their daughters live. This story will surely give mental support to patients suffering from this disease and their family members. Well, with all of this in your life, with the constant uh, demand to just help your daughters deal with this bleeding disorder, especially through their young years. And now, of course, they're grown. One's 27, one's 30. But why, on top of all of that struggle, would you write a book about it? My goodness, what, what a um, challenging thing to do. Well, the book was actually a very creative outlet. Um, when I uh, first met Tony and his girls, he mentioned sort of briefly, they had bleeding episodes and they had hemophilia. And although I had some familiarity with uh, medical terminology, I really didn't understand what that was about. And I soon found out our lifestyle was going to be terrifying um, one minute and um, frightening the next. Um, so I, I've sort of joined him over the years in becoming a teacher to others who didn't understand the complexities of someone who's bleeding profusely and sometimes you can't see the blood. 
And my best friend even said to me, you've just got to write a book because nobody's going to believe what your life is like and other people need to understand what a bleeding episode is like and how you take care of someone who's bleeding and perhaps you can't even see they're bleeding. So um, that's it was kind of a calling that I had because we've been leading sort of a secret life. We, you know, when it, when you go to work, you don't tell people a lot of things they don't want to hear about it. So the important information that needed to come out had to come out in a documented form, and that's why I decided to write it down to tell others uh, how we had strategies to keep the girls alive and what some of the learnings that we had. I think it will be very helpful for a number of different people. Hemophilia is mostly linked to boys. That's correct. In fact, um, if the published statistics, they say that uh, the National Hemophilia Foundation says one in every 5,000 boys are born with hemophilia. And it, it's a bleeding disorder that prevents the blood from clotting properly. So um, there's... In the world, there's about 400,000 people worldwide who have this, and about 70% of these people do not even have access to treatment. So um, in the case of uh, what Maria and Teresa have, which is severe factor V deficiency, there's about one in one million people who have that, and both girls and boys can be born with that. Uh, Right now, there's a public awareness campaign by the National Hemophilia Foundation. It's called Project Red Flag, and they hope to reach the more than 2.5 million women. 2.5 million women nationwide are running around undiagnosed with bleeding disorders. Can you imagine that? They, um, They don't know until it's almost too late that they've nearly bled to death because they the clues of the signs and symptoms for bleeding aren't very well known, both to doctors or to parents. Well, that is a a staggering figure. So, for example, um, one of the things I had to learn as a parent was there's a difference between a symptom of a bleeding episode and a sign of a bleeding episode. So a symptom is where the girl's one of the girls might get up to go to school and she was limping, and that would have been a symptom of a muscle bleed. Or if she had an abdominal uh, discomfort, that might have been a, a symptom of an uh, abdominal bleed, which could be very, very serious. A sign of bleeding would be a nosebleed, the kind, kind of thing you and I are used to with kids, and all kids have them. But when you have severe hemophilia, a nosebleed can be horrifying. <laughs> it, it's very difficult sometimes to even stop it. So um, what my stepdaughter's use is fresh frozen plasma. It's the uh, element uh, when you donate blood, there's red cells and there's serum plasma. And they extract off the red blood cells, separate it out, and the fresh frozen plasma is what's used. It has the missing factor that my daughters were not born with. And they use that as transfusions to stop the bleeding. It works beautifully. But your first experience with that, uh, your husband and his dad had gone on an outing, and here you were at home with the girls, and Teresa had a nosebleed. Yeah, I'll never forget that day, because I thought, you know, my husband and his dad, they were out for a little outing. How hard is this? In fact, I didn't even think about it. They just uh, trusted me with the girls, and I think I'd been married for a couple of months, and... Teresa had a seizure and she had a nosebleed and I couldn't stop it. I just couldn't stop it. I tried to pinch it. I had her sit up. I tried everything. I ended up calling the hospital. I had to order some fresh frozen plasma. And when Tony came home, um, they rushed off so that she could get a transfusion because the bleed just, it took off and it was just way out of control. Um, And that really was a wake-up call for me because Um, that's the simplest one to take care of, and I couldn't even do that. Well, that must have been, I mean, I don't think, unless you've gone through something like that, there's no way possibly to understand the literal terror that you probably were feeling at that moment because you couldn't help her. 
Right, right. And and I just, I tried very, very hard. And I, I know Tony had gone through them well, since the girls were born. Um, when Teresa was about one month of age, she had, uh, uh, her little finger had a, a little hangnail and it had a bleed. And he called her pediatrician and the pediatrician said, well, just wrap it up. It'll stop. And a couple of days later, it was still bleeding. And the pediatrician just said, well, just wrap it up, put some more, you know, band-aids on top of it. Um, and that was the sign that Teresa had a bleeding disorder. And, and until that moment in time, the, uh, Tony didn't know. Well, who would know? This was oh, okay. uh, just years ago, and girls weren't supposed to have them. Remember, it was just yeah, boys that had right. them. That's what they're taught so in wouldn't. medical school. And so, sadly, that was her first bleed, and weeks later, her second bleed happened. And this was very, very serious because um, she actually, when he took her into the hospital, he, there was no sign of blood. She had uh, dilated eyes. Um, she was twitching. And they diagnosed her incorrectly as having meningitis. And remember, the medical community, they're not looking at girls as if they would have a bleeding disorder. But what was actually happening, she was having an intracranial bleed inside her head. She nearly died. And... They, what they had to do was emergency uh, experimental surgery, and um, they removed a uh, blood clot that had formed along with some of her brain tissue. So as a result, she uh, functions, even though she's 30 years old, she still functions as a six-year-old child because of the brain surgery that happened as a result of her second bleed. And again, if they had detected her bleed the first one with her little hangnail, which seemed so innocent, and diagnosed her at that time, then the second bleed, they would have known immediately to have taken her in and given her some fresh frozen plasma, which would have resolved the bleed and she wouldn't have had some of these um, symptoms that she has now with all the neurological problems. And then you tell the story of Maria, uh, her first menstrual cycle, that was beyond comprehension. Well, yeah, she had just started her first period, and uh, we called the uh, hematologist at the time because remembering when Teresa had her first period, she ended up in intensive care uh, with uh, hemorrhaging way out of control. And Maria seemed okay. She didn't seem to have those same that same onset of bleeding. So um, I had planned a vacation to vis- visit my brother and his wife, and uh, take the girls with me. I thought it would be fun. So we went ahead and went down to Kansas City. And within a couple of days of, you know, keeping an eye on Maria, she uh, passed out and right in my arms. And then when she came to, she started complaining of neck pain. And when we rushed her with an ambulance to the uh, emergency room, uh, the hematologist who had known we were in town. We, of course, told them we were coming to town and made sure that there was fresh frozen plasma and their blood bank for us if we needed it. Um, they met us out there at the ambulance, and I said, Maria has a, a little period going on, but she's complaining of neck pain. And the doctor stepped forward and said, neck pain is referred pain. She's pooling blood in her abdomen. Mm. My goodness. So Maria was bleeding internally. Her period was actually bleeding inside her more than it was on her pads. Uh, within a couple of days, they um, they did not give us fresh frozen plasma immediately. They ran some tests, so she bled more, and they finally told told us she had two hours to live. And so, fighting our way back to get her back on track through hormones and fresh frozen plasma. Uh, I finally was able to um, see her get better and bring her home. And that was a terrible, terrible uh, situation. Um, I've explained it in the book and how important it is for parents to understand when you have to fight for your child. I I didn't know that you had to argue with doctors and nurses because um, you know what they need. You know what your child needs. And if they aren't familiar with this, type of a disorder, it's up to you to make sure that your child gets what they need. So that was my, another wake-up call that I was going to have to just be better at um, arguing and being successful at it. 
Well, there's also a glossary in the back of the book with medical terminology uh, to uh, obviously help people to describe this condition, especially if a doctor or nurse doesn't understand. And here's another comment from a reader. This book shows how one determined woman can make a difference in their lives of not just her stepdaughters, but hopefully many other women and girls with bleeding disorders. Now, you have a... Well, you have hopes for the future. Tell us some of them. Well, um, I became very curious about um, how things were going for other girls and women with bleeding disorders and uh, hemophilia. And um, last year, I founded My Girl's Blood. It's all one word. (laughs) It's a nonprofit charity and social network dedicated to providing international awareness for girls and women with bleeding disorders. Uh, it's on Facebook, and we have a website, which is www.mygirlsblood.com. Uh, right now, we have about 90 ladies with various types of bleeding disorders participating from the United States, New Zealand, Canada, India, Philippines, Sweden, and United Kingdom. They have a, a social chit-chat. They can talk to uh, other women that have similar bleeding disorders and share ideas and hopes. Um, I think out of writing the book, my curiosity just grew and grew, and I wanted to have other girls and women not feel so alone, and that's why I created that uh, nonprofit uh, charity. Now, just in the, we got a couple minutes here, talk about Tony, your husband, and the father of these two girls. Tony is Superman, I'll tell you what. I've never seen anybody who knows how to uh, turn a situation around. Um, He's been my teacher, and I've tried to understudy him as best as I can to give him a break. He's an architect. He has a business at home. And in between the girls having bleeds, which occurs more frequently uh, than we would have liked, especially in the younger years, he would put his drawings aside, take them for their... um, transfusions. Uh, he would advocate on behalf of his girls. Uh, if the daughters or the doctors or nurses didn't understand what they were supposed to do, he would explain it. If they weren't doing what they needed to or um, there was some uh, situation that needed to be remedied, he would step in and make sure that it was done correctly. Um, he's just an admirable guy who understands um, n- better than anyone in the world, how to take care of his girls. Well, what we've learned over the years is the importance of involving our hemophilia treatment center. Take time to change the interpersonal dynamics of the situation. Let the hemophilia treatment center doctors or nurses talk directly with the doctors or nurses who might be refusing to help you in the way that you need help. Involving them really pays off. Any doctor or nurse will always abide by the recommendation from their local hemophilia treatment center. You will read in Pooling Blood that our hemophilia treatment center is the Puget Sound Blood Center. And when they interfaced with our local medical community, they were able to lessen the time from 12 hours to begin treatment all the way down to two or three hours. And that's something to write about. Cheryl, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get it through Amazon.com or Barnes Noble online. Um, and that's those are the uh, and of course the iUniverse bookstore online. So those three areas, um, you can just do your clicking and order pooling blood, and it'll be be there in a few days. Well, Cheryl, we appreciate you taking the time to share this incredible story uh, with all of us. So thank you so much for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you. That was Cheryl Nenef. D'Ambrosio. She is the author of her book, Pooling Blood, a journey of two girls with hemophilia and their parents' struggle to keep them alive. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.